Well, the basket making is, is very interesting in that it is a community affair. By the time I've woven a basket, as many as three or four other people, you know, other Wabanakis may have had a hand in that through the materials gathering, through the processing. And in the early days of the Alliance, there was a group of women who would braid the sweetgrass for us. That's basket maker and 2016 National Heritage Fellow, Teresa Secord. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Teresa Secord is an award-winning ash and sweetgrass basket maker and one of the people responsible for bringing this ancient art form into the 21st century. A member of the Penobscot tribe, which is part of the larger Wabanaki Confederation, Teresa grew up in Portland, Maine, the first of her generation raised off the reservation. Although her great-grandmother was renowned for her baskets, woven from the bark of the black ash tree and sweet grass, Teresa didn't learn to weave until she was an adult. After getting a master's degree in geology, Teresa returned to the Penobscot Reservation and became interested in the cultural art forms of the Wabanaki, learning basketry from an elder Penobscot basket maker, Madeline Shea. Teresa was all too aware that basket making was close to becoming a dying art form. Determined not to watch this fade into history, she co-founded the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance and led the organization for 21 years. She brought fellow Maine basket makers together to save their own art and to teach a new generation of basket makers. The organization affirmed elder basket makers, reestablished an ancient tradition through its young tribal members, and helped tradition bearers of all ages realize cultural pride. Yet Teresa is more than a passionate advocate. She's also an accomplished artist whose work has won first place awards and has been purchased by collectors and museums throughout the country. While Teresa imbues her baskets with her own creative vision, they're still based in the traditional forms. In fact, she still uses the basket molds that she inherited from her great-grandmother to shape her art an art that was so close to being lost. Now, your great-grandmother was a basket weaver. Did she pass that on to your mother or to your grandmother? No, and that was what was striking when I went to work for my tribe as the staff geologist in the 1980s. I became aware that the tradition in my family, as it had in many families, had skipped at least two generations And so I did know my great-grandmother, and I watched her making baskets when I visited the reservation because I had strong ties there growing up. I went to visit in the summers, and my grandparents lived there when I was a kid. You must have spent some time thinking about this. Why do you think it did skip those two generations? Do you think it was your great-grandmother's generation thinking you won't need this, or your mother or grandmother's generation kind of pushing away, or both? Yes, I think both. I think that at one point, basket making had become associated with poverty. And then, you know, the invention of plastic baskets for use had an impact. And the economy in general, people had been very interested in baskets and Native American art for a time, you know, sort of this rusticator group of tourists at the coast of Maine for almost 200 years. And that that had really slowed down in the, you know, I'd say 1960s and 70s, especially. What were the baskets traditionally used for? 
Well, traditionally for hunting and fishing and, you know, different storage purposes in the olden days, the tribal economy then switched to, you know, I like to say that the Native Americans in Maine were really the first ones to plug into the economy of tourism, which is still Maine's top industry. And so since 1840, people have been selling baskets at the coast. And these baskets were made to serve all kinds of purposes to hold men's collar stays, you know, back in the old days when collars had to be fitted into shirts, to hold napkins in the in the houses. And you'll see in places like Roosevelt's Campobello home, for example, it's full of baskets that are used for waste baskets and all kinds of purposes in the dining room. Even napkin rings were woven for use and sewing baskets, etc. What are the materials traditionally used for the baskets? The materials are ash from the hardwood tree, the ash tree, and sweetgrass, which is harvested at the coast of Maine. Can you walk me through the process of gathering and preparing the materials? Because I've seen a video of it, and literally my jaw was on the ground. That is a lot of work. Right, exactly. And that goes back to your question, too, about why the tradition had really dropped off and and dwindled down to just a handful of elderly women largely carrying on the basket-weaving tradition because it's basically the men go into the north woods of Maine, which is, you know, a pretty harsh environment, and search for a suitable ash tree. And it's a very particular type of ash, too, the particular species we use, um, brown or known everywhere else as black ash, is kind of rare. And so then cutting down the tree, dragging the tree home, and then, you know, the man's son or grandson or nephew may pound the log after the bark is removed with the blunt end of an axe and just you know, really bang on the tree for as much as, you know, several hours, maybe a half a day. And the log has to be painted with ashes and water to show where the pounding has taken place. And then that releases the splints along the growth rings. And then we split the ash further down between the growth rings and continue cutting and processing and scraping. And, you know. and of course, then the sweet grasses need to be gathered as well. Right, and dried. And, and the sweetgrass is only picked in July and August. It's just long enough in July. And by the end of August, it's really getting brown. And so it's a sh- very short season and it has to be dried and bundled. And then the basket makers braid it before weaving it into the baskets. And so again, that's another issue with access and invasive species um, affect harvesting areas. And, you know, so you can see where this became very hard work for the few elder basket makers that were carrying on the tradition when I was introduced to it in the the 1980s. Well, that leads so nicely to my next question, which is you have a graduate degree in geology. How did you come to basket making? Correct. Well, it's it's very interesting time for especially the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy tribes in Maine. We had a, a large land and monetary settlement from the state of Maine and the United States government right around 1980. And right after that time, around uh, 1984, I was finishing up a master's degree in geology. And for that two or three year period, the tribes had been, our tribe in particular, had been calling everyone who had a degree um, in natural resources especially because 
we, together with the Passamaquoddy tribe, had reacquired 300,000 acres of main land, mostly woodland. And so foresters, geologists, attorneys, and the tribe invited me to come back home and work as the staff geologist. So the tribes at this point had acquired a significant land base back and wanted to do all the work themselves. And so we had a big mineral assessment program that went on for several years. But all the while, I had been distracted by the basket makers and the culture and actually met my teacher while I was studying the Penobscot language. Sadly, my teacher, Madeline Shea, who is a great basket maker that I was able to work with for five years, later would become known as the last person born speaking the Penobscot language. And she taught it to you. Was she your teacher if for language as well? She was, and that's, that's how I first met her, by just being interested in taking language classes. But it soon became clear that I was a much better basketry student than a language student. It's undergoing a bit of a revival now, but at that time, almost 30 years ago, there were so few people to practice with. You know, it's a very difficult thing to bring a language back from the brink. But she was the person who also inspired me to help form the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance and save the basketry because she was watching both aspects of our culture decline in a really precipitous way. How did she teach you? What was her method for imparting this to you? Well, it was very traditional in that first, you know, I'd just watch her weaving her baskets. She could see I was interested, but again, we were working on language. And there were a couple of language students, probably two or three. And after a while, she would invite us to start helping prepare the materials. How were we at braiding? You know, she was very clever that way. <laughs> and, and I'm working on that with my niece now. How, how would you like to braid some sweetgrass for me? Which is really a pretty big job. And so she could see it. it was very appealing to me. She was a great basket weaver. Her baskets were aesthetically pleasing and beautiful. And she'd been a younger friend of my great-grandmother's. And so she would start to share stories about my great-grandmother, even though I knew her, my great-grandmother, Philomen, they called her Philomen Solace Nelson. She didn't pass away until I was about 21. You know, I hadn't had the opportunity to weave with her. And so finally... Madeline started inviting me to try a little weaving, and I, and I picked it up right away. But the teaching method was very traditional in that she would just basically have me watch with very little verbal instruction. And then she would look at what I had done and take it apart, back it up several rows where I had made the mistake without even saying anything while I was doing it. You know, she would demonstrate and then hand it back to me, like do it the right way. And we became so close that I worked way beyond the classes. I was living and working on the reservation at the time, so I had close proximity to her. And but what year we started, was this? I don't mean to interrupt. This, what, around oh, when? sure. No, this 1988 to 1993. And so what was happening was, um, you know, I would take her and her husband to on errands, you know, to the post office. They didn't drive. They didn't have a vehicle. So I would do that, take them to the Bangor Mall in exchange for lessons and help around the house. Do you remember the first basket you made? I do. I do. Yeah, it was a, called a little button box. How big? More information, It was pretty please. small. It was pretty small. It was about the size of a teacup. 
and, you know, it had a cover. And I did weave it on one of her wooden forms. And then uh, soon after that, I, I received the wooden forms, the antique wooden forms that my great-grandmother had to use through, through one of our relatives. We've said that most of the basket makers in Maine at that time were older, and you said they were in great decline. Do you have a sense of how many basket makers there were at that time? Uh, yes, we actually did some statistics when we formed the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance in 1993. We counted about 55 founding members whose average age was around 63. What were the goals of the alliance? Well, the goals were to, you know, save this disappearing art form. That was the mission. And so the goals supporting that were to, of course, you know, help bring forward a new generation by teaching them the steps involved in the whole weaving process from start to finish. So supporting those goals were workshops, traditional arts apprenticeships, and also the marketing. The tribal basket makers had been marketing in Maine for nearly 200 years. And that was always an important piece. And I guess I wanted to back up too and note that the very first meetings of the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance grew out of efforts by my friend Kathleen Mundell, who was the folklorist at the Maine Arts Commission, to bring together the weavers. And Kathleen Mundell had also, through the Maine Arts Commission, been running a traditional arts apprenticeship program with National Endowment for the Arts support. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, in my whole trajectory, even the very earliest meetings of the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance and the effort that we grew out of came from NEA-supported work in Maine. It was money well invested. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Did you find that as you formed the alliance and began apprenticeship programs and, you know, outreach and, and marketing that people in the tribe became responsive, especially younger people? Yeah, um, it was it was really a great time. But you know what was interesting in the very beginning, it wasn't young, young people. It was more like people my age in their 30s and 40s who were first quite interested. And they later would be the parents of the new generation of basket makers who are now kind of the leaders in terms of the weaving members of the group. I would like you to talk about a fine line I would think you'd have to walk because on one hand, you're upholding this very old and honored tradition of basket making, but at the same time, you're also bringing your own sense of creativity to it. Right. It's been, you know, an interesting process to even watch the tradition evolve. And in the very beginning, I guess I kind of assumed that there would be women who would take to the tradition and and carry this forward. But what became interesting was because there are still so many male practitioners in this weaving art form, which I find in my travels around the country is a bit rare in other tribes. Um, and I think maybe it just has to do with the hunting and fishing baskets. The bigger baskets are still made by men. But what began happening was some you know, a number of young men started becoming interested in weaving and also supplying the rest of the group with the ash weaving material. In the past, it was, you know, a number of older ladies weaving these fine, delicate baskets. So it just became interesting to see 
these men come forward in our group, you know, over a decade or more and start making these stronger but still the artistic-looking basketry pieces, which were commanding the higher prices as well. And so there was a lot there at the time that the elders in the group had to absorb. Always in the past, a young basket maker or apprentice would never charge a higher price than their master basket maker. You kind of had to fit in this economic structure that had existed for generations as well. But they couldn't afford to charge these low, low prices or these you know, younger basket makers. They wouldn't be able to even afford to take a weekend to go into the woods to find the ash and weave if they couldn't earn some decent money at selling the baskets. So there was a lot of tension there. As the style started to change, and as men became more involved in making what were termed fancy baskets, which now <laughs> you know we refer to more as artistic pieces, it was a very interesting time. What about in your own work, Teresa? The basketry that you do, I'm looking at pictures of them, and they're very different. They're beautiful. I, I'm struck not just by the design, the breadth of different sorts of baskets, but the colors. Well, my own work has, of course, evolved as well and is, is continuing to evolve as we speak. Uh, it was very traditional in the beginning, and it looked very much like my teacher's work, which I think is, you know, what we all strive to do as students, you know. And, and I still think my baskets look very much like my great-grandmother's baskets and my teacher's baskets because, again, I'm using my great-grandmother's wooden forms and all of her tools but I have introduced a new material in the last few years, and it is cedar bark. And that's kind of interesting. The tribes here have used cedar bark in weaving in the past. I did find this out through some research at the National Museum of the American Indian, you know, kind of found this missing link. But I had been handed some cedar bark from some of my friendships and networking with other Western tribes who, especially Northwest Coast tribes, who weave with yellow and red cedar bark. And so that's where I've been getting some inspiration. And I like the aesthetic and the texture that you can get by adding this third material. And this there's an aromatherapy going on, too, that's really pretty fantastic when you're weaving with cedar bark, ash, and sweetgrass together. I guess the final thing about my baskets as well is that I wanted to introduce this new material to try to share with other weavers in our group how we need to be conserving the ash, that it's severely threatened by the emerald ash borer beetle, which other northeastern and midwestern tribes have been really struggling against. What about the colors you use? Well, I do use a variety of natural dyes, but more recently have gone back to commercial dye. But those are usually just like kind of pops of color on this combination of the ash and sweetgrass and cedar bark, which in and of itself provide, you know, a nice color variation and aesthetic. Why do you think a new generation has been inspired to learn traditional arts and culture? Well, I think it's really a way for people to still assert their sovereignty and their a connection with their cultural heritage. In terms of material aspects of the Wabanaki culture, we were well known and long known for our basketry. Certainly, those of us who weave fairly proficiently today were not the first. You know, we can look in the historic record and see these amazing baskets that our ancestors wove 
100, 200 years ago. And so I think that our, our kids and our grandkids really want to be a part of that longstanding heritage, and they're proud of that tradition. And I think it even relates to you know, all of the young people going to support the Standing Rock Sioux and the, and the pipeline effort there in that they want to belong to this joint you know, cultural movement. And, of course, that as well has to do with protecting the environment. And I don't know, I think for us as, as weavers, that, that helps make us quintessential Wabanaki. You have seen over the past couple of decades basket making that had once been viewed as a craft now being recognized as an art. Um, This is like a two-part question. What do you think accounts for that transition? And what does it mean for basket makers and, and tradition bearers in general? I think it's very healthy. I think we've been really fortunate to have this next generation of weavers who are now in their 20s and 30s who basically grew up as teenagers and and even toddlers <laughs> hanging around the workshops and finally becoming apprentices and now several are winning national awards have won United States Artist Fellowship and the top prizes and the largest juried Indian art markets in the world. And I just think we're very fortunate to have some really highly skilled artists among our group. And I think it had to happen for them to take the art and make new designs, new shapes and and symbology and weaving styles. And even there are basket makers in our group who are sitting down and weaving baskets that take four months to weave. And that really was unheard of when we helped revive the tradition because the prices had dropped so low that people were just hurrying up to make a basket, you know, to pay an electric bill or buy gas in their car. So having had it evolve to an art form allowed the next generation to actually earn a living at it and proudly carry this art form and tradition forward. And they had to evolve it into their own designs and The prices are very much reflecting that hard work and months of effort. A friend of mine sold a basket last month in the Santa Fe Indian Market for right around $25,000 for an individual basket, and that would be the highest price ever commanded for a Wabanaki basket. That's something I think we're all extraordinarily proud of. How does basket making connect the Wabanaki community? Well, the basket making is is very interesting in that it is a community affair. I really couldn't live in Boston and be a basket maker. I depend upon someone from currently now who is Micmac, who goes into the woods and his son helps him gather the ash and prepare the wood. Yesterday, I actually just received a shipment of sweetgrass from a 75-year-old Passamaquoddy friend. So trading and bartering and purchasing the raw materials from other basket weavers who um, have always been a part of this cottage industry. It's really also very early main cottage industry where people help supply each other with the raw materials. And what I love about it, too, is by the time I've woven a basket, as many as three or four other people, you know, other Wabanakis may have had a hand in that through the materials gathering, through the processing. And in the early days of the Alliance, there was a group of women who would braid the sweetgrass for us and sell it to us by the yard after it was already pre-braided. And now that's virtually disappeared. But, you know, it connects people through 
our events as well, where the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance holds four annual events. Um, we just had our 23rd Native American Festival and Basket Makers Market in Bar Harbor, which is a historic place where um, since 1840, basket makers have been going to summer and sell baskets at the coast. And you know, so very much a, a celebratory summer event for the artists and the tradition bearers of the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance. And that's a great social time where people come together and see each other and share, as well as interacting with the public. So it really helps keep, forgive the pun, you know, keep the communities fairly woven together. And in Maine, a lot of the tribal artists live on the reservations, and so it is a community affair, you know, that people still come together and make art and do other cultural practices together. You've been honored and given many awards, and now a National Heritage Fellowship. Tell me what the National Heritage Fellowship means to you and, and what you think it could mean to your community of basket makers. Well, there's just so many things there. Of course, many people, and especially in Maine, there are a number of nonprofits in Maine, and many people at these small nonprofits, you know, work like I did really hard for a couple of decades at something that's very important and part of the heritage and the fabric of Maine. And not everyone gets recognized, so I feel so fortunate in that way. And I feel proud that other younger basket makers can see that something that they've been a part of, too, as well as the teachers in the Traditional Arts Apprenticeship Program who worked with me and who helped teach the next generation also, I think, can celebrate because it's important to be a part of an art form that's validated outside of Maine as well. And so the fact that the National Endowment for the Arts recognizes this as of such import that they would, you know, recognize the director and me as an artist is just really, really big. And I think it's great for everyone. I, I think the only other thing I would say, too, in answer to that question is, I guess for myself as an artist, I felt so proud because lately, and it's and it's interesting, you know, with the contemporary movement in mainstream art as well, certainly in Native American art, you know, because I still exhibit and market and enter juried competitions with my art. And sometimes it'll be, oh, you know, that work is interesting, but it looks very traditional. We're looking for something more cutting edge and more contemporary, and even losing out to, you know, next generation basket makers who are making really interesting and newer looking and more exciting and cutting edge style basketry. I mean, I just feel so fortunate and honored to be recognized for still doing very important work, that it's good work and, and traditional is still very important. And of course, the NEA recognizes that. And it's a really a great thing that they do. Well, Teresa, thank you, and congratulations again. Your work is spectacularly gorgeous. Thank you as well. That's basket maker and 2016 National Heritage Fellow, Teresa Secord. You can meet Teresa and the other 2016 National Heritage Fellows on Friday, September 30th at the Lisner Auditorium in Washington, D.C. at the National Heritage Fellowship Concert. The curtain goes up at 8 p.m. It's free and open to the public. And if you can't make it to Washington, be sure to watch the live webcast. For more information about the concert and the webcast, go to arts.gov. 
You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.